welcome to the Future of Women podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. My name is Azora Zoe Pocknod, and I am the founder of Goldune. We are a new e-commerce retail brand making sustainability less beige. I got my start working in home and kitchen and food at a company called 352 and founded Goldune in late 2020 when I felt pretty fed up with the lack of representation and warmth and joy and inclusivity in the sustainable retail and zero waste landscape. For some reason, felt like everything was really beige and really granola. So I am a huge sustainability nut and really passionate personally and professionally about sustainable design and access and all of these different things. And I had the immense pleasure of meeting Ariana through a mutual connection and thought that everything she did was beyond fascinating, beyond cool. And I'm so excited to get to dive a little bit deeper into all of the above. Ariana, I will let you introduce yourself briefly, but I'm just going to say that Ariana has the coolest background and does the coolest work. And Mm -hmm. I have a gajillion questions for her once we, we get to know her a little better. Thank you for having me, Azora. So I'm Ariana, the founder of Forested Foods, an agroforestry venture that's really looking to build sustainable supply chains of agroforestry products. The heart and soul of what we do is to conserve forests and really make conservation lucrative for all, notably forest communities, normally based in Ethiopia, but calling in from D.C. Oh, yay. I was wondering if you're going to be recording from Ethiopia or D.C. I know this <laughs> has been challenging, but you have such an impressive schedule. I remember asking you last time I chatted with you what time it was there and was like shook by how late you were staying up taking calls. Yeah, I think all of us entrepreneurs know that as busy as our schedules are, at least we're blessed with a little flexibility. Totally. That's one of the perks, I would say. But speaking of D.C., speaking of Ethiopia, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about what brought you to Ethiopia and what the experience of the pandemic has been like there as an entrepreneur and especially one with a global team. Yeah. So I guess I've been living and working in Ethiopia. I'm really focused on smallholder farming agriculture for about six and a half years now. I'm originally from Hong Kong and really had very little exposure and awareness of the African continent, business and emerging markets, agriculture, really until I came to Ethiopia. And I guess it was a little bit of an accident as well. After growing up in Hong Kong, was doing my undergrad in the U.S., was working at a consulting firm, Booz Allen Hamilton, for a couple of years in D.C. and New York. And I think basically after a couple of years in, was just looking for an opportunity where I could take a break from work, but do something in a skills-based volunteer setup and found this NGO called TechnoServe. Their tagline, which sums up a lot of what they do, business solutions to poverty, is working with enterprising people, mostly smallholder farmers, small medium enterprises across the developing world to better play and interact with global markets so that they can lift themselves out of poverty. They have this really genius program called the Fellowship, where they recruit and utilize typically early to mid-level management consultants, bankers, and other business professionals. And we basically do pro bono work for them in one of their country offices, mostly across Latin America and Africa. So long story short, it's really through TechnoServe and that pro bono consulting program that brought me there. I was hoping to do all this learning about the country before I got there, but very much got to the airport, bought a Lonely Planet guidebook, read it on the plane, and just arrived January 2015. What has the experience of the pandemic been like in Ethiopia as an entrepreneur with a global team? Obviously, it's not 
2015 anymore, and you've certainly been there for quite some time, but I'm sure that was different, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think also being someone whose family is all across the world as well, the pandemic's been really revealing of just different priorities in countries, different societal norms around how we handle public health and, and whatnot. So yeah, I would say like in a place like Ethiopia, there was a point where the government, and this must have been like maybe like April, April of last year, was trying to mimic a lot of the protocols that other countries were putting in place. Like obviously it's great to mask up. It's great to enforce policies to social distance, manage not curfews, but like certain businesses closing, like bars and restaurants and really like hubs for COVID spread. But in a place like Ethiopia, there can sometimes be different priorities. Health is a luxury, right? And sometimes making sure that people can get their paychecks who are living paycheck to paycheck is more of an immediate need. And so being in in that environment was a stark difference to Hong Kong, where I'm from. And I was in Hong Kong for a few months last year during the pandemic, where it's just like everyone was abiding by all the rules. And if you didn't abide by the rules, it was easily jailable by the government. So I saw a huge range of differences in behavior during the pandemic. Yeah, and specific to our business, Forested Foods is older than your venture, but I would say we're still pretty early stage. And so in some ways, it almost felt like despite crazy changes and disruptions in global supply chains, especially in food, we were too small to fail. And when the pandemic happened, we just had three of us. And so one, one of our employees is in New York and the other two of us are in Ethiopia. And so we were pretty used to working virtually anyway. I'm sure the pandemic did impact other parts of the business, obviously. I think there are very few businesses that weren't impacted, but I'm curious what's been challenging about working with smallholder suppliers and farmers, and even in general, perhaps just for folks who are maybe new to those words or new to those concepts. Yeah, for sure. So I think the term smallholder farmer, it typically refers to land size, and the definition also differs based off of the country and the context. but I think in general, we classify smallholder farmers as farmers who have roughly two or less hectares of land. Unfortunately, I don't know the acreage conversion, (laughs) but I think when we use the term smallholder farmers, it's not definitive, but it's usually that they are in emerging markets, tend to be living under the poverty line, but not necessarily. Maybe I can share about the origins of forested foods first and then talk about the challenges and what's been interesting and fun about working with smallholder farmers, which is honestly less related to to the pandemic and more related to like the nature of our business and the time and place of us building this. For the origins of forested foods, it, it was definitely an accumulation of experiences and knowledge related to global supply chains, really focused on everything I was learning through my different projects at TechnoServe. So I was really originally just supposed to be at TechnoServe for six months before returning back to my consulting job. But long story short, just completely fell in love with the agriculture sector and felt really compelled about the opportunity for impact in an industry that I was now realizing is the backbone of society and for much of the population of the world and the industry that they work in. And so at TechnoServe, I ultimately ended up staying there for almost three years and was in this interesting position where I was basically their ad hoc consultant on lots of different types of projects. So for example, Nespresso wanted to be able to build smallholder farmer inclusive supply chains. 
sustainably processed coffee. And so we would basically help Nespresso design that project from the ground up. When Diageo was entering the Ethiopian market in, I think it was 2012, we came in a couple of years later to basically help Diageo build their raw supply chain of malt barley for their new beer brands in the country from smallholder farmers. Um, also did different projects in ag tech transfer from Israel to smallholder farmers for horticulture production. Yeah, just like a whole splatter of things. And I think a lot of these experiences helped me understand where were these common bottlenecks, creating like systemic issues in helping us build more equitable and sustainable supply chains. And so with forested foods, I think some of the key bottlenecks that I saw that were yeah, really just like eating away at me, I guess, was that global supply chains are incredibly complex and opaque. And when you don't have more transparent supply chains, you definitely can't engage better like price control or quality control. The second thing was in these global supply chains, it was more often not that smallholder farmers were definitely getting like the lesser end of the stick, as well as those producer countries. And then after working with one project with TechnoServe, it was really a forest conservation project. I was realizing that forest ecosystems are invaluable to the rest of our environment, ensuring clean air, water, soil for food, and that we really at a time in in the evolution of the world where we have to be conserving forest assets because they have these like exponential ecosystem services that they provide, even compared to new growth forests. And then the fourth thing I was realizing was that there's actually a lot of commercial value from forests that really wasn't being unlocked by enough players and therefore wasn't, I think, driving sufficient incentives for people across the food supply chain from smallholder farmers to governments to private sector businesses to conserve forests. And so I would say like these are the four challenges and opportunities that really inspired Forested Foods and our business model. Ethiopia, it's a really exciting place to launch Forested Foods out of. Exciting, but challenging. It just made a lot of sense for us to start Forested Foods out of Ethiopia just because I had been in the country for three years at that point with TechnoServe and so had these very random but very important foundational relationships to start the business. So just given the work with TechnoServe, knew a ton of different farmers across tons of different regions in the country, also knew lots of local government stakeholders. And in a place like Ethiopia, you really have to be working in partnership with government across the supply chain. So at the village level, the regional level, the federal level, it definitely hasn't been easy. But despite that, it's a necessity. One thing that I'm trying to think about as we build forested foods, let alone thinking about scale, is like, how do we build a business model, you know, even just with this tiny piece of like developing contract farming schemes with our farmers in a way that it's scalable through replication, but is also nuanced enough to accommodate the people and forest ecosystems that are unique. So, so for example, like right now we're working in three different forests in the southwest of Ethiopia. They're in three different political regions, but semi-adjacent enough that the portfolio of forest-based products is somewhat similar. And across the three forest areas, the people we work with speak a different language, follow a different religion, have a different culture of business, different dynamics with gender and female empowerment, and also just like a very different relationship to money. And so you would think that 
for us as Forested Foods, one of the key pieces to successfully scaling up our model is making sure that being a supplier to Forested Foods, so from like the smallholder farmer's perspective, is attractive for them, right? And so I think a lot of the narrative around lifting farmers out of poverty, like doing what's better by them, making things more equitable. We always talk about income, but we, you know, we've even found that that's not necessarily true in every context. So for example, when we were purchasing honey from this one region in Gambella, we were offering the farmers market rate and premiums based off of of predetermined quality parameters. And we had allocated a day or a morning that we were going to go purchase several hundreds, thousands, if we could, of kilograms of honey from them. And basically the night before we came in to aggregate the honey, they sold it to a local trader at a 25% discount compared to what we were going to purchase it at. And so it just shows you that there's a lot of behavioral science that's really missing for us to like be the best business partners for our partner farmers. I mean, part of it is education and showing them why waiting could get them more money and the importance of that. But at the same time, there's definitely like a balance we have to strike in terms of like understanding where they're coming from, what is a good business deal to them. It's more faceted than money. And a lot of a lot of times it involves these other things like, you know, timing. One of our farmers, and he's actually our farmer coordinator in one site, Gara Forest, he himself is a role model beekeeper, but as a part of the community, he CSI educates us a lot on the farmer psychology. And so as we're planning to like aggregate honey, set pricing, he's, he's just been so critical in helping us understand what it is that farmers want, also in training topics. So a lot of farmers would tell us that they want to transition from traditional beekeeping to like modern beekeeping, because it's just a lot more convenient for them using modern boxes. But even he was able to tell us that in the past in that community, one of their biggest challenges is like retaining bee colonies in boxes. And there's a lot of what they call like absconding. And so we even learned a lot and actually saved a lot of resourcing listening to his experience and even educating his fellow farmers on why we couldn't transition to box hives immediately if the farmers weren't willing to put in all all the effort it takes to actually domesticate bee colonies. Beyond farmers, What's been a lot more complex about our business model than I could ever have imagined was just the amount of engagement we would have to have with other supply chain actors. Starting Forested Foods, I was thinking mostly about farmers, where our business played on the supply chain, government and buyers. But there's all these different people along the supply chain that can actually really jeopardize or add value to the business. For us, one of those actors has definitely been truck drivers. So like in a lot of the forests that we work in, and I mean, in, in general, in the country, there isn't really a ton of or any third party logistics providers that can get products reliably, professionally from the rural forest areas that we work with to the capital of Addis Ababa. And so every time we need to truck honey from the forest to Addis, we are sending someone to go to that cafe in a rural town that truck drivers like to hang out at and basically really unfortunately have to like beg and coerce truck drivers to like get them to take our money to take the honey to Addis and 
for processes like that, we really rely on farmers like CSI and other community members there if, for whatever reason, our staff aren't able to get there. Things work very informally in so many ways and relying on not just like our key model farmers, but also different relationships that we have with different like government officials in these rural towns has been really critical in building the business. I'm super curious when you talk about commercial value of those forests, what what that means or what that is. Yeah. So so as mentioned, Forested Foods, it's an agroforestry venture and agroforestry is is really the integration of agriculture and trees and vice versa. And so really anything that can be produced in a forest is is in our horizon potential, I would say. So we're starting with forest. So Forested Foods started with working with smallholder farmers to produce, process and market forest-based honeys. But in the next couple of years, we'll expand and work with our same producers to grow spices and herbs, fruits, one day gums and resins like frankincense and myrrh. But yeah, I mean, there's room for everything, even livestock production and staple grains in some way. Cool. That that is so much broader than (laughs) I expected or envisioned. I mean, and I guess that all that means is that I have a limited view of agroforestry. I need to expand by talking to you more. But how did you go about sort of creating a sustainable global food supply chain? What does that look like? I mean, the, the operations of that certainly feel or sound or seem from the outside super complex. And obviously, you're the person for the job. Yeah, a lot of what inspired Forested Foods was, at least at that point in time, I think Forested Foods was incubated in 2017. But I was getting really into human-centered design and market systems thinking, basically just understanding why, or, or I guess instead of understanding, really asking these questions of like, why doesn't the world and supply chains and global food systems, like, why don't they work more in favor of people on the planet? And so I think, you know, embarking upon forested foods and our business model, it was really designed understanding who are the key people that would play a role in our business, less so our employees and more so who are the different supply chain actors from farmers, traders, middlemen, government, and buyers. And so, yeah, I would say when Forested Fuse was being ideated, the inspiration was really to create like the Cargill for regenerative deforestation-free products. And our vision is to be working with smallholder farmers who live around forested areas across the global south, producing really everything and anything that can be produced in forests and bringing them to market in a large way. And when I say large, I mean like volumes, volumes behind volumes. And even though this is the vision, knew that we'd have to start in some bite-sized way. And so when I was incubating and piloting the business, I'd actually gone back to the U.S. for grad school for a couple of years, 2017 to 2019. I decided that the scope of our pilot or prototype was to show that we could just build one supply chain from Ethiopian forest to international shelf. And so I've done the consulting thing where I put together like this matrix of different products we could start with. And these were, you know, products that I just knew grew in forest in Ethiopia. So different types of spices, honey, fruits, gums and resins. And a lot of the factors were related to the constraints of just being in grad school and having very specific holidays and time off of school, notably this summer. And so I was looking at the different products based off of 
seasonality, if I already had a network of farmers who produced those products at a quality I was comfortable with, even logistical things like, is the forest in which I have relationships and connections to this product relatively easy to get to in terms of like proximity to like an airport and like a paved street? And, and basically, when I did this assessment, honey came out first. And to be totally honest, I wasn't super thrilled it was honey. It's a difficult product bring to market from end to end in the context of Ethiopian honey, but we did it anyway. So we launched Forested Foods with our own brand. It's currently called Marisa, but we're actually doing a total rebrand right now. So it'll probably just fall under Forested Foods. But what it is, is a line of single origin honeys from Ethiopia's indigenous trees. And so we will be expanding that to other countries as we expand our business. But our honey line is really like the consumer facing heart and soul of what we're trying to do at Forested Foods which is unlock more value, especially commercial value from forest products. I have a brief honey interlude. My friend Sarah Jampel over at Bon Appetit is a huge fan of your honey, which to me is like the most glowing stamp. I think she's amazing and I trust her. And she, so I saw that. I was like, oh my gosh, that's But I'd also actually, something you mentioned really stuck with me. What are the challenges with honey? And I'm curious, that wasn't what you had wanted or initially wasn't your first choice. And I'm curious to sort of dig a little deeper there and learn a bit more about maybe some of either the supply chain challenges with honey or, or why you felt like that was maybe not the most ideal first launch and then plot forward anyway. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, just for context, I'd actually done a research study for TechnoServe on honey and what the bottlenecks were to bring it to market. So just to name a few of the issues with building honey supply chains from Ethiopia. Well, one is that I think at a global level, honey is probably one of the most commoditized food products. And to be pretty blunt, we've like totally bastardized the product. And so right. it has one <laughs> of like the lowest price points that's inherently unsustainable. And, mm -hmm. you know, honey is widely traded as a commodity, as an input for all kinds of products. And when we look at the farm gate price, so the price that we pay farmers, that's not including field logistics, processing overhead of honey companies, export logistics, and getting it to customers, like that farm gate price, at least in Ethiopia, is already a little bit higher than the commodity price of the product, say, like freight on board in a sea freight container going to some wholesale buyer. Ethiopian honey in particular has a much higher farm gate price because consumption in Ethiopia for honey is quite high, which is great. And we don't want to disrupt that market but it makes it hard to bring it to the global market. And so in starting Forested Foods with Honey, we knew that the only way to make the economics work was really to create an end consumer brand versus trade it like a commodity in metric tons upon metric tons. So yeah, that, that's one thing. The second thing is that in Ethiopia and a lot of other countries around the global south, honey production is largely produced through traditional means. So Ethiopia is the largest producer of honey on the African continent, 10th largest producer in the world, but well over 90% is beekeeping as traditional. And so they create these hollowed out logs as hives, hang them meters, meters high into trees. A lot of honey is naturally forest based and beekeeping is, is wild versus the more domesticated outside of your house box hive format. And, you know, when you have this semi-wild beekeeping practices and you're not able to manage a box that's like right outside of your house, there sometimes are issues in quality or at least quality based off of like the commoditized market. And so sometimes the honey in Ethiopia 
it's produced with a little bit of a higher moisture content related to maybe not like the honey not being harvested at the ideal time. And then what's more impactful on moisture content is is also just like the availability of the right inputs like food grade buckets, airtight buckets, so that moisture content can be retained. And moisture content is you know, one of the key metrics for the commodity world and honey in general. Yeah. So it's it's pricing, it's standardized quality control. Yeah. So I would say those were the issues on the supply side, but then on the market side, because honey is such a commodity, we realized that in order to really successfully build a brand of single origin honeys, there'd have to be a lot of consumer education. And so, yeah, it's it's both a challenge and an opportunity. But yeah, I would say overall, it's been quite fun to work with consumers, both end consumers, chefs, and other people ambassadoring the product to explore the fuller potential of honey that hasn't really been appreciated in the past, especially in the U.S. Sure. I'm curious, when you basically set out to build forested foods, did you know from inception that you wanted to sort of incubate and launch these consumer-facing, or you mentioned sort of choosing the consumer route over the trade or the wholesale route for the honey. I'm curious if from day one, you knew, oh, or if it ended up being a new challenge that you you tackled as it arose. I know launching a consumer brand is, I'm, I'm like minimizing it and making yeah. it sound like it's not that hard. It's of course really hard, which is why I asked. Yeah, so it's definitely the latter. I mean, when we started Forested Foods, like my dream was bulk wholesale. I was dreaming mm, of like okay. sea freight loads of containers of different products. Because I think for Forested Foods, we're really working towards impact at scale and really changing the way that the largest corporations like Unilever, L'Oreal are sourcing their ingredients. And for us, our dream is to combat deforestation and show people that conservation can be a very lucrative business, you know, not only across the global south, but really all over the world one day. And so to kind of work towards that level of impact, we really have to be at a freight containers level, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so I'd say like deciding to launch our consumer facing brand of honey was just like really, yeah, I would say unexpected from the beginning. And the reason we did it was was I think related to the logistical constraints of being in grad school when I was launching Forested Foods and unique to trying to build global supply chains of Ethiopian honey and really chose that consumer route due to making the unit economics work in a sustainable way. I love that. I love that you chose the sustainable route that was maybe not what was always on the map or what was always the goal. I feel like that's the true test, right? But I'm curious from a selfish standpoint, what future you envision for Forested foods. Obviously, we we know that you're no doubt in my mind that you're gonna <laughs> impact on the sea freight level, if you will. But I'm curious <laughs> if you're planning on rolling out more consumer products. If we as consumers can get jazzed about that now, if there are things in the pipeline, or if you're really sort of continuing full steam ahead on on the wholesale route, or I imagine maybe possibly both. But I'm curious, and you may not be able to tell us fully <laughs> if there are things we can plan to be excited about in advance. Yeah, yeah. So I would say we, yeah, I mean, it's a very current question. Me and the team are in real time working through, you know, like a market vertical prioritization. I think, like, I'm definitely a founder whose my mind is always a little stuck too much in like 20 and 100 years. Like, I'm thinking about what force it is, <laughs> like, you know, like, what will the venture look like after I pass? I know it's a bit morbid, but that's like one of my issues, strengths and weaknesses really as an entrepreneur. And yeah, but I would say like right now, current conversations 
with our team are that we will double down on the D2C channel. So we've got an e-commerce website, mariza.com. Again, I mentioned we're doing a rebrand, so it'll all go under forcedfoods.com, where we are able to share our message and you know what we care about and why conservation is important and exciting with end consumers. But in addition to the focus on D2C, we are looking at collaborations with larger corporations who can absorb much larger volumes of products. So despite the difficult wholesale economics of honey, we are going to look into wholesale honey supply as well as beeswax. And then hopefully in the next two years, we will have really solidified the foundation of our global honey and wax supply chains and expand into a couple of spices. Yeah. And I I think given the economics of spices, I think for that, we're looking to start out wholesale and bulk, but it's definitely possible that we'll get into single origin spices or essences of gums and resins, possibly even dried fruit. I mean, it's really, I think we're going to be a little bit focused on where we focus now for the first couple of years and then be opportunistic based off of markets. But I think overall, our, our eye is really focused on which, which market vertical will really help us drive sufficient and scalable demand so that we can have the most impact on the supply side. Thank you for that. I feel like I pushed you for secret details and <laughs> I got what I was looking for. Before I was an entrepreneur and before even my last role of the role before that, I worked in sales. And I'm curious how you go about on like the supply chain side, basically meeting these companies, these huge companies, by the way, which are like no small feet, like the Unilevers of the world, and basically letting them know that you do have the sustainable supply or you do have these premium ingredients that are like sustainably created. I'm curious how you go about approaching them with that information or how you go about sort of like enticing them, getting them to improve or improve the qualities of their product by incorporating sustainable forestry into sort of their supply chain. Is that fully sort of coming from your past experience, your background? Are they coming to you from a business standpoint? That's so fascinating to me. And I feel like that's really no, no small feat, right? Getting out there and getting these big names of the world to buy into your vision. So honestly, I did not realize how much I would actually despise sales. I started this business and I have never respected salespeople more than I really ever have now that I'm like in their shoes. So it's hard out there. I know it's, it's really hard. hard. It is a it is a different mindset and yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredible. Honestly, I'm so so impressed. I actually brought someone onto my board recently who does sales or who has had a career in sales for some of the largest natural ingredients companies just because I was like, wow, we really need help and you know, sales is the lifeline or what do they call it? Like the bloodline of really the impact model, right? So I would say the way that we approach sales has been a bit different based off of the market segment we're going for. And I would say taking the case of honey, I feel like the past year or so, we've really been like product market fit testing. I mean, we've got the product, but at the start of COVID, we were really bullish about food service, like restaurants and hotels. But given the fact that these customers were tragically shattered by the pandemic, had to quickly pivot. And as you would know, the pitch, whether direct or indirect or implicit through marketing to end consumers versus chefs versus buying teams at small or large CPG companies is super different. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I would definitely 
say that we're still trying to figure it out. But I think one thing that our team has really trying to internalize is like, at the end of the day, customers are only going to buy in if we, no matter where they are in the food system, based off of whether we can make their life better. And so for end consumers, that's a little different than say like the buying team at a Unilever brand. But you know, we're working hard to make sure that that's at the heart of our opening conversations is like, what makes your job challenging? Is it accessing reliable sources and hard to reach markets like Ethiopia? Is it traceability to the field level? Is it that your company is really trying to walk the talk and put their money where their mouth is with direct sourcing and sustainable sourcing? And so, you know, we're really trying to get to those conversations as fast as possible, not just to see how we can help buyers with their problems, but also to see if it's a really if it's a good fit. Because I think I think in this day and age, there's still there's so much hype around sustainable supply chains. But, you know, the million dollar question still is like, what are people willing to do to fix that? And we're pretty convinced that people just still still don't know what what it is they're willing to do and what on the buy side they're willing to sacrifice for that. For folks who are listening who are maybe new to the concept, who are obviously not in buying roles at a major BPG holding company or who maybe don't work in or, or touch sustainability or food service directly, what sort of actionable advice do you have for them? Or are there sort of things that people can keep in mind when they are shopping for food or when they are thinking about sustainability or forestry? For you, this has shifted sort of the course of your career in your life. In the realm of sustainable consumption, I do feel for consumers, I guess it includes us, because there's just so much out there. It's pretty hard to be thorough about your research or your learnings to figure out if every single thing you're doing is sustainable. So I, yeah. I, I, I definitely empathize with people in that way. So I guess where I would start is just do what you can one step at a time and start with something that's like really fun to you. Like, for whatever reason, if you are really nerdy about circular systems and upcycling, go out of your way to purchase snack brands or through companies that are really spearheading the, the circular industry. If you care about environmental conservation or more equitable supply chains, look for those brands that are really walking the talk in those areas. So I would say like, to make things a little bit easier and also just make it fun. Start with the topics you care about and look for the brands that really role model that. Even though Forested Foods' dream is to be like a Cargill for deforestation free regenerative ag product, one of the things that is was, you know, was and still is very exciting about building an end consumer brand is helping consumers realize that conservation and biodiversity can be really fun. And we want to engage consumers in this concept of combating climate change, which is normally like so daunting and complex that it's paralyzing, but like engaging them in a narrative that is much more fun and via the more delightful world of specialty food. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, like fun, like honestly, fun is, is just like super important to me, not, not just on the market side, but, you know, things on the ground are very difficult. Every, everything is really hard. And so at the end of the day, like it all has to be not just worth it because it's totally worth it, but day to day also has to be just a lot of fun. That's sort of the shared philosophy between both of our small businesses or both of our paths as sustainability, sustainability adjacent founders. But yeah. <laughs> I, I feel the same. And I'm glad that you mentioned the paralysis 
because it is paralyzing. And I think a lot of people freeze. Sustainability, of course, is a loaded word, a buzzword, like a jargony, greenwashing-y heavy word. And in many times I've been almost reluctant to even use it to describe my business, right? But I haven't found a useful alternative that quickly communicates the essence of what we do to customers and community and just even folks who are in pursuit of learning or discovering. And I found that sustainability sort of means something different to everyone who uses it. <laughs> it feels like of this last decade that's taken on a, a meaning or like a zeitgeist or an entire universe of its own. And I guess my question for you is really, what does it mean to you, right? Both as an expert, as an entrepreneur, and, and just as a person doing your best. Sustainability for me, I, I really define that as building something, whether it's initiative, a business, really to last beyond your time there. And I think about it socially, financially, beyond environmentally. With our partner farmers, we need to be building sustainable relationships in the sense that we need them as suppliers and they're only going to supply us if it's financially a sustainable relationship for them. Beyond sustainability being a necessary component for how we build our business model at every stage, I think we're at a point in the world where sustainability just isn't enough. And I'm sure we all have been hearing the term like regenerative being used a lot more. And there are different definitions, but you know, for me, the definition of regenerative is giving back to the earth, a system, people more than what you take from it. And I think we're just at a point in the world where we've been depleting natural resources, really exploiting the most vulnerable communities to a point where doing things to sustain the status quo just isn't good enough. And we're at a point where we really actually need to be like tipping the scales more in favor of the planet and of vulnerable communities and populations. And it's like, if, if we don't shift to a more regenerative mindset, then we definitely won't be sustainable longer term. Well said. I really like the reframing, at least that I've heard of carbon negativity as climate positivity. And that to me is sort of one mm. piece of what you mentioned around regenerative practices or regenerative agriculture, right? Like this concept that not only are we maybe like, is there carbon drawdown parity, but we're actually returning nourishment to the soils or adding benefit as opposed to just being neutral, which maybe we sort of have passed the point at which neutrality is considered enough. Ariana, I'm curious if there was a moment in your childhood or your adolescence or growing up that you look back on now and you see with the hindsight that you were maybe sort of destined for forested foods or to really get involved with sustainability or supply chain or forestry or agriculture. I mean, there's possibly two factors that have been consistent in my life, or at least my childhood. I mean, I would say number one, I just grew up super ignorant about food and, and agriculture supply chains. So when I first moved to Ethiopia six and a half years ago, I think I was just so shook by my own naivete that my interest in global food supply chains and just considering how many people around the world work in the food system, and then obviously everyone being impacted, it really amplified my curiosity to dig into it more. And I think combining that ignorance really with a trait of mind that I've had since I was small, which is I'm really at heart a super big problem-solving nerd. I basically think the merging of my fixation on problem-solving and my newfound curiosity about global food systems 
is really what planted the seed for forested foods. And I think naturally with the experience with TechnoServe, just giving me exposure to lots of different value chains, basically had decided that within the realm of global food systems, that trying to find a way to conserve these irreplaceable ecosystems like biodiverse forests just seemed to me like the biggest problem that I wanted to really put the weight of my resources and own energy behind. You and your work are beyond interesting. And I really can't wait for you to change global supply chain. And I'm so hopeful that I can at any point be sort of a small part of forested foods path. And I can also buy in and Gladune can buy in and we can support your work and that listeners also feel hopefully inspired by the work you do in sustainable forestry and at the very least potentially interested in honey tasting. (laughs) So it was so lovely chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to chat with you. One day, you know, the tables have to turn and I should be interviewing you because I think what's very clear to me is that climate change and combating it, mitigating it, it's a very collaborative effort and we need people at different parts of the supply chain. And so while forested foods is really playing at the ground level, I think Goldoon plays a very, very important role on the market side. And both are equally important. Thank you so much. I agree. I'm excited about all ends of the journey. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you.